Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and I hope you brought your platinum card, dear listener, because this week's episode is bringing you five-star luxury. UK cooking show Five Star Chef has finally made it to Netflix, and Father Saul joins me to break down what can only be described as the best British export since Harry Styles began serving us angelic sounds and androgynous fashion choices. Five Star Chef follows a cast of up-and-coming chefs as they compete to take over the iconic Palm Court restaurant at the Five Star Langham Hotel in London. The show is a bonafide roller coaster of emotion, and whether you've seen it or not, I think you'll enjoy our discussion of what makes a cooking show actually good, as opposed to the gimmicky nonsense clogging up our Hulu home screens these days. But first, Saul and I get into the Los Angeles food news of the past couple weeks. We discuss an absolutely heinous list brought to us by the LA Times, why a vegan restaurant in Santa Monica has decided to add meat to their menu, and what the heck is driving all of the high-profile restaurant closures we're seeing in 2023. Tallulah, we hardly knew ya. Without further ado, dear listener, let's chow down. Welcoming back to the podcast today, a man whose favorite pastimes include trolling obscure subreddits, spending long nights dancing solo to the timeless bangers of Michelle Branch, and not living in Los Angeles, it's Father Saul. How you doing today, Father Saul? I'm doing great, and I think you just gave me my new LinkedIn bio. Here we go. <laughs> You're welcome, and I'm not even going to charge you for it this time. You excited to uh, finally come back to Los Angeles? I can't wait, man. I got a big week planned, a lot of good food, a lot of good times. I'm excited. Well, I, I'm excited for you to be here. Uh, dear listener, Father Saul is finally making his way back to Los Angeles, and we've got lots of fun eating plans planned. But I'm even more excited to discuss Five Star Chef with you today. I, I'm not going to give away what I thought, but uh, I think we've got a pretty interesting conversation ahead. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a little a, a little while since I watched the show, but it's stayed fresh in my mind, and I'm ready to dive in deep. Well, before we get there, we've got some newsy bits to get into. Uh, dear listener, that's actually what Father Saul and I call it when we're planning this podcast, newsy bits. It's a little bit of an embarrassing <laughs> thing to disclose, but um, I, I'm being vulnerable with you, so thank you for allowing me that. So first on our agenda today, there is an Eater article that came out this week regarding a Santa Monica restaurant called Margo, which is a vegan restaurant, which in order to survive has started serving meat. Interesting move for a vegan restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Sign of the sign of the times. If you can't survive in Santa Monica with a vegan restaurant, where can you survive really? And to be fair, I think they used to serve meat that went plant-based in 2021. And then uh, if they realized they did not, go back to serving meat as well to invite a broader clientele, uh, they would have had to close their doors. Yeah, tough times in tough times in vegan food world, apparently. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think veganism is dead? <laughs> was it ever alive? No, I don't think veganism <laughs> is dead. I do think it was alive. I do think it's good. To, I think it's much more of a marketing thing, right? I think, I think for them, I mean, look, they, of course, literally serve uh, meat now and, and, and provide meat options. But I think what was happening with people was, were self-selecting out. I think, I think I think veganism as a marketing idea has become like really exclusive, right? And people have, I think, a maybe not so great idea of the kind of cuisine or kind of food they're going to eat when they go to a vegan restaurant, which is really unfair. I've, I went to a vegan restaurant in DC, I remember, which was some of the most delicious and like 
depth of flavor, really, really good uh, dishes I'd had at a restaurant a couple of years ago. But I think the very idea makes people start filtering it out. So you kind of almost even I think they still lean plant heavy and I've only given a small set of meat options. But it's more about having customers feel comfortable coming in the door rather than self-selecting out of your business. Okay, I think you're right. And I think what you're kind of dancing around, which is my opinion on this, is that while vegan food isn't dead, vegan junk food is. In some ways, plant-based cooking and vegan food is hotter than ever. I mean, Eleven Madison Park famously went plant-based. I think right. Noma did too for for a while as well. Um, and there are certainly lots of restaurants in Los Angeles where vegetables are very much the star. But I think it's no longer cool or desirable to have those kinds of restaurants, which are like In and Out but vegan or fried right. chicken. But vegan, where you're basically or just going or yeah. pizza. Well, pizza is a little bit of a different story because inherently pizza is vegan, like at the dough, right? And there's actually a really good plant based uh, pizzeria in Venice, which the uh, zero zero, I think it's called, or double zero or something like that. And uh, it's by Matthew Kenny. And it's actually very good because pizza is one of those foods where you can make it vegan without actually getting too fake with it. I think it's when we're putting in all these like uh, fake meats and substituting yeah. them and deep frying them and trying to recreate that like junk food experience, that shit is gone. Like there's this vegan fried chicken place down the street and it's like <laughs> trying to do Nashville hot chicken. It's gross. Mm. Like I, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. tried to like it. It's gross, man. Like not good yeah. at all. This is this goes back to our uh, the reason I mentioned pizza is because this restaurant we're talking about is called Margo's Pizza Kitchen and Bar, but but so but so meaning that like yes you can make good vegan pizza but it's that like when people want pizza the whole point is that they want to be kind of unhealthy with it right they they yeah. want like the fattiness and like the animal product that you get with all this stuff and I think you're exactly right it even reminds me of the conversation about the dry bars that were closing down right it's like yo when people go to a bar they just want alcohol if you don't want alcohol don't go to the bar or order water. It's just not that big a deal or a mocktail. You don't need to create an institution that only serves a certain kind of thing. That is not what the essence of the food is. You want vegan junk food? You want junk food? Eat junk food. You want to serve vegan food? Make it healthy. It's healthy. Yeah. You don't have to or force it into a box. Good. Just make it just good. Make it good. Just make yeah. it good. Yeah. Or the, the, final way, the final way to do it here is I don't know if you remember my, one of my first lunches at uh, the old company we used to work at. But I went down to a spot called Veggie Grilled, no idea it was plant-based, and ordered a chicken <laughs> cutlet and was like, guys, this is a delicious chicken cutlet. I'm like really happy with this lunch. And everyone was like, that's not chicken. <laughs> it was like a, you know, C-H-I-K apostrophe N chicken, fake chicken. And I was like, felt really betrayed and fooled. However, they got my business because <laughs> I had no idea they were actually vegan. What's hilarious about that is that it's literally in the name of that place. Like, me and Line was like, weird name for a spot that serves chicken, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a testament to the fact that you were doing a lot of things in those days where that didn't leave you too many brain cells on the side. Speaking of restaurants not faring well, another thing that's happening in Los Angeles right now is that it seems like every week we're getting a big restaurant closure. This week, it was announced that Tallulah and Santa Monica is closing, which is a restaurant that's owned by the Rustic Canyon Group of Restaurants. Very successful and, from what I understand, profitable restaurant group. They're closing because they're saying that 
their model is no longer financially viable. And this is the latest in a number of closures that we've seen this year. We talked about Taco Maria. Uh, we've obviously seen Angler close. Animal is closed after many, many successful years. It really struck me that they said this financial model is no longer viable. And it got me thinking, what models are viable? What models are working? Financial model that doesn't work basically just means you're not able to make enough money to offset your costs. That's the model failing, right? I think the more interesting question here, I'm not sure if anyone's done this yet in LA Times or Eater might dive in, but as you're mentioning, a bunch of major standbys are closing. What is the factor that's really, is there, or is there a through line factor in that? Are rents rising across, across LA in a way that restaurants are not able to do it? Are, are diners not willing to go out and pay the extra dollar for food given inflation and, and the rising cost of incoming ingredients? such as pork, like we talked about last week or whatever, our last pod. So I, I think, I, I don't know what it what the answer is here. I don't know what the problem is here, but there is one. There always is one. These are restaurants, a tough business, right? But given the number of high profile closures, is it labor? Is it ingredients? Is it consumer preferences? What's happening here? I'm not sure. And it's difficult to parse given just individual examples in different places, Taco Maria, Tallulah, Animal, maybe maybe John and Vinny just felt Animal had its time, and yeah. it was time to go to a new thing. I'm not entirely sure. I think there is a little bit of a through line that you can like if we're if we're getting like conspiracy theory with this, not necessarily conspiracy theory, but like uh, private oh, investigator. Yeah, well, let's I, I meant this. more so like if we're getting like a true crime fanatic that sits at home with their cork board and like puts red string between random suspects to figure out who did it. If we're looking at all the restaurants who closed in the recent year, I do think you can see some through lines. First and first mm -hmm. and foremost, I gotta imagine all of these restaurants are facing exorbitantly high rent. So we right. talked about how Angler and Taco Maria are both at uh, uh, fancy malls that can't be cheap. Right. Animals on Fairfax, which I gotta yeah. imagine is a pretty penny to upkeep. And then Tallulah is pretty much beachfront property. That's one thing. Secondly, they're they're for the most part quite large restaurants, from what I recall. Animals not large so large, countries. but yeah. even it, yeah, is, yeah, it yeah. is larger, right? Like it's probably like fifty tables or something like that. And I, I think maybe the model that's going out of style is these really big, larger than life restaurants with. A pretty like unique menus that maybe people mm -hmm. in these tighter economic times don't want to go out and risk their dollars at these places, especially if it's not like an all time experience, right? Like if it's right. an animal that's sort of been out for a while and therefore doesn't feel novel, or if it's like Angler Taco Maria, well, more so Angler, it feels like you're going to a mall restaurant when you could be spending those yeah. dollars at like Horses or Mother Wolf. Like, right. I think those kinds of concepts are unfortunately not making it right now. And that's why we're seeing, kind of like we're seeing in Hollywood, remakes really, really mm -hmm. pop up. We're seeing a mm -hmm. lot of proven concepts open up from like places like New York or San Francisco coming down here and opening like literal replicas of what they have in a different city because it's a proven concept. Kind of like you, you know the Marvel IP is going to work. You're going to make that Avengers 17 movie, you know? Yeah. Although, just like the flawed analogy you just gave to, to Marvel, where the concept's not working anymore, people are tired of it, 
you know, Angler is one of these examples where it didn't quite work. I, I don't think you're entirely wrong with proven concepts coming in and drawing investors, right? Ultimately, because it proved out somewhere else. But I think there, I think what you're really what you're really hitting on is this like how you actually structure the restaurant. What's the size of the restaurant? How many tables you got? And therefore, what's the cost of the space? I think that I think that really may be something. And look, I think I, I would not be surprised at all if Angler ultimately failed because of location, right? Both in terms of where people want to go and the cost of being there. Um, and similarly for for Tallulah, Animal is probably the more unique case. I don't know. I don't know exactly why Animal closed, but it seemed that seemed like a restaurant that like did its job, right? Mm-hmm. Like Angler was around for fifteen years, changed the landscape of LA, and had kind of like made its statement. But you also have your best years of the world, right? Who have been around forever in a big space in what used to be a cheaper part of town is probably getting increasingly expensive. And I do think the pressure will be the the cost of the location and the cost of of the space that the restaurant is operating in. And maybe, I don't know if you're teeing me up, teeing this up, but the, the smarter concepts are interesting niche spaces that are smaller, expensive, probably per table, but high concept and a destination in some way um, where they don't have to see, do a hundred tables, whatever, uh, every, every hour to make sure that they have their enough to pay rent. I, I think you we solved it. Kind of, we did it. We solved it. We solved it. Well, no, I'm about to solve it even more right now because I think what you just brought up kind of made me think that the concepts that are going to work in this moment are really creative business models. Meaning, like you have to find every every way you can to cut down on food costs, cut down on personnel costs. Like you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see like I remember back in like. 2010, 2011, you saw a lot of these like high caliber chefs getting into the fast casual world, like Michael Voltaggio opening up Inc. The or uh, Sack Ink Sack, something like really a, a really bad name for a uh, for a sandwich shop, but it was a sandwich shop. And uh, you saw like you know another Nate Appleton, I think was his name, but he he went over to become the chef at Chipotle. Like they were just taking on these like more fast casual concepts because that's what was selling. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that again. Um, but mm. hey, we're not business consultants. We're not even restaurateurs. What do we know? <laughs> and of course, we have Evan Funky over here going the exact opposite direction. The way that you just opened a four-story restaurant and charged 50 bucks for a bowl of pasta. There you go. Business model yes, solved. But interestingly, he doesn't pay rent. I, I believe he doesn't pay rent. I might be wait, wrong wait, about that. What? What? It's because it's because uh, the partner in the restaurant owns that building. So uh, yeah, there you go. So that's another way. Find a patron, kind of like a, the the Medici's. Find a find, find a, your Medici. Find a find a sugar daddy. Sugar daddy restaurant tours. We can pioneer this, bro. I also think we need to get much better at conspiracy theories because yeah. I have a conspiracy theory. Rent is expensive. Doesn't quite hit. We yeah, need like no, some inside jobs here. That's why I said conspiracy theory was not the right way to frame it. I meant more like you know at-home investigators who don't have any of the facts but yet solve crimes. That's what I meant. You were, literally, literally, you were like, I got something for the conspiracy theorists, true crime aficionados, rent's expensive. <laughs> well, as all we'll true crime that. aficionados know, uh, the answer is not always the most exciting one, okay? <laughs> Look, speaking of uh, exciting stories, though, there was, and also of restaurants potentially closing, 
there is a restaurant here in Culver City. It's called Etta. It's a Chicago transplant, and it's an Italian restaurant. Uh, you know, they make pizzas, pastas. It's pretty good. It's also it's it's also in sort of like a shopping center, uh, hotel situation. It, it feels very like modern, basically. It's a very modern, you know, concept. Um, their owners got into a bit of trouble this week in the press because it turns out that uh, they were at serious risk of being evicted for being late on, I want to say, tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in rent. And uh, this isn't the first time they've gone into some financial trouble. In fact, it used to be owned by multiple owners, and those owners a few years ago, uh, like two years ago, got into a legal fight because it, the owner that currently owns Etta in Culver City was accused of using dollars that should have been used for paying staff to do things like or uh, getting a private jet and paying money at country clubs and stuff like that. So, you know, not upstanding behavior. I don't really care that much about the story if I'm being honest, but what I do care about <laughs> is what do diners do in situations like this? It made me think of the horses situation, the situation where you have some like nefarious bad behavior happening at the top of the restaurant Yet, it doesn't feel right all the time to boycott that restaurant because your impact doesn't just impact that you know nefarious business at the top. It's impacting the staffers. It's impacting the many many people who are making their living at this at this restaurant. I I don't know what the moral thing to do is, and it got me thinking. It's like an art or the artist type type debate, you know. Yeah, I don't even know if Ed is the best example of it. They did like a classic paycheck protection program, like from COVID-19 fraud, buying private jets and stuff using that money. And just like, I don't know, like, look, it's not great. My, per I think this is like a restaurant, like, you know, consumers make their own decision. I don't think, the I agree that I don't think this is the most dramatic scenario. I also think based on reporting is the reason why they're in current financial trouble at their spot is because they've not been able to drive business as well due to strike due to the writer's strike. Right. And people they're like situated in a corporate area with like um, uh, with nearby a couple studios and stuff like that. So yes, there's a broader conversation to be had. I might wait, I might wait for a cooler or better hook for a restaurant mis mismanagement. Like horses was a classic classic of the genre uh, <laughs> before, well, before diving back in. Cause these guys, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like not patronize these guys cause they had weird, like like what like slightly weird business practices. It's not quite my moral line. What do you do with horses? Weirdly, weird, weird to say. Weird to say. <laughs> horses. I spend the money. I, I spend the money I would have spent on horses and go adopt a cat. That's what I do for the horses. <laughs> Wait, seriously? Is that like? Do you, would you feel that strongly about horses to not go? Or would you? Or would you? Uh, well, or would you be the guy that is like horses is having a downturn in the market? I'm going to strike while it's hot and get a nice table. <laughs> Honestly, probably the latter. Cause didn't the, didn't the chef no longer work there also or, or something like that? Like, look, there's, there's also scenarios here with like the bad behavior for me, the, the more, the more press for whatever reason, I don't know. Like, I, I think, I think um, and I'm being a little bit flippant about Etta, but like, like um, garnering wages, right. And like not paying your workers and like abusive workplace practices in that way, for whatever reason, seem like closer to, not wanting to support because I know my dollar is not even going to support the people who are working at the place, right? Um, and, and and that like you know attending like 
whatever rubber stance practices that that I don't think are right. Etta is just kind of like a weird kind of wonky situation it seems and like not great for sure uh but i don't know for whatever reason i'm less compelled to like really care i don't think i was gonna go to ed in the first place it's the real answer i was never gonna eat there so i don't care i went for the pizza countdown back in 2021 Ooh. and and had a had a fine night it was it was fine it was a nice enough pizza nice and you know, it was more on the neapolitan side sort of like blistered on the edges a little uh, a little softer in the middle i i never felt the need to go again but it is one of those places where it's like oh someone's looking for a wreck in the wasteland that is culver city i might I might send them there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, like, look, they, they laid off some staff. Laying off staff, in my opinion, is actually better than, like, fucking that staff over and keeping them employed for a long period of time. And they also give uh, pay raises to other staff that they kept that they deemed uh, essential. I don't know. It's normal business practices with a little bit of paycheck protection fl- uh, fraud sprinkled in. Who hasn't yeah. been there? Who hasn't been there? Well, thanks for uh, tipping off the IRS to our practices. <laughs> Here at LA Countdown Media. <laughs> Here at LA Countdown Media. Uh, we take the private jet just to fly Saul down from Seattle every once in a while. Speaking of visiting different parts of the country, uh, season 21 of Top Chef has begun filming in Wisconsin. And Kristen Kish has been doing a bit of a, uh, a media tour around this. New host Kristen Kish and former Top Chef champion, I should say. She was recently given the New York Times feature treatment. Did you uh, have a chance to read this? I did. Yeah, I was looking forward to this one. First and foremost, have you had any new thoughts or feelings on her as Top Chef host since we last discussed this? No, uh, I will say this the this piece didn't really inspire confidence in me for some reason. It, it, I, I went back and watched some older seasons of Top Chef yet again. Watching her performances also didn't super inspire confidence, I'll be honest. I found it really fascinating that Magical Elves, the producers of Top Chef and Bravo, executives who obviously lead the network, claimed that they didn't interview or even consider anyone else. She was number one. Now, that may not be true, but if it is, really strange. Yeah. There's an element of when a sports team doesn't get the first coach they were going for or the second coach or the third coach and they end up with Doc Rivers. They say Doc Rivers was always our guy. There's... There's an element of that in that magical elves statement. However, I I kind of can see that being true because if I was making like a Mount Rushmore of candidates for the top chef job, she definitely would have been in there based solely on the fact that she has yeah, hosting yeah. experience. She's a champion. Yep. She brings something new. She brings a new perspective. She's got a you know diverse background. I I I still think there's. They must have considered someone like Eric Ajapong, who is also a great host on the Food Network, former Top Chef contestant, you know, incredible chef, incredible perspective. I would be mind blown if they didn't at least think of someone like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I, I totally agree. You're Melissa Kings or even people outside the Top Chef world, though that might have been a little bit less likely. Um, but I also agree with you that like it is totally viable that they that they're being honest and didn't actually look at anyone else and they had Kristen Kristen on their sites all along. I will say maybe the one thing you're thinking about a little bit further that maybe maybe I am weirdly happy to see is that I think more so than Melissa or Eric, Kristen kind of has an edge. She kind of has like a 
and I didn't I didn't know this, but apparently she used to model, which is not really relevant, but at the same time, in terms of poise and kind of like intimidation factor somehow that Padma brought seemed relevant. And I do think, I mean, the article references the first time she ends up saying during filming, please pack your knives and go, everyone applauds. And I think I can see her. I I, I haven't seen it yet on her appearances on Top Chef, which is fine because it was not her role to be like the kind of icy, but both supportive and sometimes icy host. I think she could do it. I think she could do it. Uh, but I think it might take, it's going to take an adjustment period for sure. I'm sure she's going to be able to do it. Like, especially eventually. I mean, you know, the magical elves folks are literally magical. They've been doing this show for like 20 seasons. They, they know what they're doing. And I believe they can, if she's not there already, they can definitely mold her into a very competent, judge and and host of the show um yeah i i just was re- i was just surprised that with such an important decision you you don't have like a thorough vetting process you know it's sort of totally. like 2016 she was hillary clinton in and we saw what ultimately happened you know totally or they were the sixers front office back in 2017 and after bringing in jerry colangelo hired his son brian after a quote-unquote thorough process nah you can cut Brian, that part out if you want. I just have this on my chest. <laughs> no, no, this the, Brian is such a son name, you know, like the the, the like yeah, loser totally. son Brian, you know. Yeah, yeah, the fail fail son Brian. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They didn't they didn't give Shout it out to my friend son. Brian who just got married. <laughs> well, you know, they didn't give it to the son, you know, Stephen or you know Kurt or something like strong like that. You know, it was it was Brian. Stephen or Kurt are your strong son names? Good lord, man. Kurt, Kurt, that's that's a strong name. It starts and ends with a consonant. What do you know about I, that? I guess I guess its homonym means like you know cold and like cut, like to be Kurt is kind of like yeah, you know, and to it, be a little rude or whatever. It rhymes with hurt. Like Kurt brings the hurt. You know what I mean? You really think? Yeah, that that real insight. Thank you. <laughs> real what? name genius over here. Okay. Well, the the last thing I want to talk about with this Kristen Kish uh, article is that. They were very much trying to pitch it as like, or the the way the article was framed was very much like Top Chef is a struggling franchise and Kristen Kish is here to save it. That This is what they said. No. Yeah, this yeah, is what they said. I'm reading from the article. Truth is the aging Top Chef franchise, which has had its share of stumbles in an increasingly crowded constellation of food shows, needs her as much as she needs it. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty like clear, man. They're trying to say like this show is old hat and it's not what it used to be. I mean, it's a, it's a strange paragraph. It's, it's, and it doesn't track. I I wouldn't call it the framing of the whole article. The article as a whole to me is framed as like, Hey, here's this person stepping into a huge limelight. And one of her core personality traits is like this imposter syndrome insecurity. And she has to overcome that to kind of step into the role. I got, I like I really like little design tidbit where they were like, they gave her high heels and like baggy pants to make her seem more substantial. So that was an interesting, like fashion, like insight. They had this paragraph in here and they are trying to frame Kristen as like, Kristen has like a new fresh voice for top chef. I don't think they really shout like said top chef was like, you know, old or, or like whatever, like, over the hill beyond that one weird sentence it is a strange framing though that 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 paragraph made me kind of squint right and now look top chef has had its fair share of issues let's not hide behind it literally what two seasons ago they had a gabe Morales win 
right before he was accused of sexual harassment in the workplace and eventually he's like this like disgraced former winner they've had several winners i think in the past and contestants who've really not been that great and of course the first tenure of the show really heightened this like super white bro-y culture of kitchens that like didn't play now i do think far far before kristen has now come on as host they'd really addressed all, like most of this stuff in terms of diversity and and bringing in different voices and being really a flagship platform for your Kwamis, your Erics, your Melissas, your Kristens to go on and make careers boot low, right? So Don Burrell, blah, blah, the list, the list goes on. So I didn't really fully, I, I'm not fully sold by that particular pitching and I don't think it's entirely true, but I do think Kristen could, I mean, look, Kristen could bring a, a like a, a pop of freshness, a different perspective. It'll be interesting to see how she interacts with Tom and Gail. Um, so oh, look, it's, it's not entirely wrong, but it was, I think, incorrect framing by the writer. Well, the writer did mention that Padma actually addressed the Gabe situation, which had to do with sexual harassment of employees and whatnot. Very serious stuff. Padma addressed it. Like she addressed it directly when it happened. So I think to frame it as like, oh, Top Chef needs a host that's going to speak up and, you know, uh, correct its stumbles. I I just thought was really uncalled for framing. Not to mention, I think the situation is kind of flipped. I kind of think this is a franchise at the top of its game. And Kristen kind of the risk here is that she 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 fucks it up, for lack of a better term. Right. Well, it's like, you know, if Pep Guardiola were to leave Manchester City right now, and apologies yeah. for all of the sports uh, uh, parallels, dear listener, I'm hoping you're a sports fan. If not, Google's going to be a friend of yours. Pep Guardiola, <laughs> if he left Manchester City right now, whoever's coming in next, they can. there's only one way, and that way is down. Yeah, that, that, I, think, I think that's more correct here, right? It, it, this is a juggernaut at the moment coming off one of its best seasons, if not its best season ever. And having like the quarterback change in the middle of all that, right? So you, you're correct in that way. And I think, therefore, Kristen has a much higher, it's much more risk than reward for Kristen, frankly, especially early on here. I also think it's so funny, to your point, that one, I, I'll say Padma did address Gabe and everyone did, but not, I'll say like not super well. And they were criticized for it. And then that article came out that I linked to in this piece about, you know, the, the NDAs and the pressure for folks not to speak out against other contestants, right? Not a shock, also not a great look. Additionally, in this article, Kristen is asked about her former boss and mentor, Barbara Lynch, who was recently like, black, like canceled for being a fucking alcoholic, abusive worker, like, like leader in the restaurant industry. And she's like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. I just wouldn't be here without her is all I know. Literally I, discounting the fact that like they were just like, oh, here's this fresh new voice and perspective who can like take on all the problems. Like, I think... I don't know, man. Like literally the same article. That's disproven. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was gobsmacked by that inclusion. And and the fact that Kristen would say that, like when like the media training there was not on point. I think she was maybe like media trained so hard that she like defaulted to saying, Well, I can't speak about that. All I can say is this. But <laughs> the pivot was off, man. The, from pivoting to say I can't speak about the abuse to I'm grateful for her. That's not just, just say it like you're not talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or even I mean, look, I, I actually don't have an issue with Kristen because if Kristen didn't see, I mean, well, let me let me put it this way. So if Kristen didn't see her experience of abuse, I don't think she has a responsibility to speak out against it, right? If someone she clearly values a, a, a relationship she cherishes or whatever, 
And I think I, I, I personally find it okay. I think you can still, you can say that and also say, like, it's one behavior we don't want or, or blah, 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 speak out against the behavior itself and culture. Or two, just don't position yourself as, like, the person who's going to be this transformative, like, this big transformative voice in the culture if really you are a product of it and like maintaining it when it is beneficial to you. Right. Like it has to be one or the other. It can't be. Yeah. But I, I disagree with your statement that if she didn't see it, she doesn't have a responsibility to say anything. This is very much a like believe workers situation, you know, believe victim situation. And that that is fair. That's fair. Yeah. Even though she didn't see it, you're now in this position of power. You've got a great platform. Like, you didn't see it, but guess what? Sometimes abusers are nice to certain people and they, uh, yeah. they, they're they selectively nice to certain people to uphold their image and are complete terrorists behind the scenes. So I don't know. I feel like the responsibility – she has a responsibility. I'm not going to judge her based on this you know, one-off line in, in one of the first articles she's ever given as Top Chef host, but you know, I think she's got to do better. Yeah. I, well, I, like, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. But what I more so mean is that, like, she doesn't have to, I think, burn. What, what she can say is, I don't know everything about the situation, but if what's said is true, it's no good, right? Like, like, like I, I, I don't stand by that, right? There's a very simple yeah. way to your very point of, like, responding in media. But <laughs> basically, like, because the, the quote comes off as a basically a supportive Barbara, like, it, it's weird, right? And very, very weird to then compare it to, like, Hey, the stumbles, this franchise that has its weird stumbles in the past now needs Kristen, who is, by the way, also doing the same thing this franchise has done in the past. That's weird framing. Now, Kristen herself, I think, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I've like talked myself all, all, like, around this conversation of being a bit cautiously optimistic. But at the same time, every single time we watch a Top Chef episode and she's on screen, I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. But look, people learn. There's, I'm sure, a lot of training that goes into this kind of stuff. Nobody is born like a natural presenter. Do you know what I mean? Out of the womb. I mean, you and I are obviously natural podcasters, no training I was about whatsoever. To say, like, look, look in the screen, man. Look in the mirror. I think yeah, it does happen. Look, not everybody can be prodigies. And some people require training and practice and reps. And maybe she's just one of those. Look, I want to talk about another thing that really pissed me off this week before we talk about Five Star Chef, okay? We're going back to a well we've we've gone down often, and this is the LA Times well. They posted a list this week, which really, really got me going, which was a list of like 15 spots where you can go in LA if you want to feel like you're in the Big Apple, aka New York. I am so... Thanks for thanks for translating that for me. Appreciate that. I was like, "What big apple is this?" The big the big apple. Um, I've got a good big apple story for you actually, but I'll save it. Um, there's uh, there's the relationship between New York and Los Angeles, and there's also a relationship between the New York Times specifically and Los Angeles, where they often cover L.A. and do it in a really patronizing way. I remember there was this famous article a few years ago where like the reporter went and spent like a week in Highland Park, did like a weird staycation, and they went to like a bookstore and an art store. And it was like they were in some like magical little kingdom or something. It was very like weird and fetishizing. They are constantly little broing us over there in New York. Okay. So I had a problem with A, the LA Times, our paper of record trying to get Angelinos to cosplay as New Yorkers when they can't stand us. And B, there was a paragraph that really got me going, and it was this. 
If Angelinos were ever in their feelings about anything East Coast, these days, it's nothing but a love fest, a happy cross-pollination of culinary cultures exemplified through the Times' annual coast-to-coast event. When a st- Okay, blah, blah, blah. Basically, she's saying, it's all love now. Listen to this reporter. I forget their name. Kelly Dobkin, I think, something like that. You are clearly not in the streets doing food reviews on Instagram, okay? Because if you were, the people who are in your comments the most taking shots at bagels, at our pizza, at our pastrami, are New Yorkers. And they've got nothing but vitriol for what we have in Los Angeles. Oh, there's no good pizza here. Oh, these bagels are bullshit. I haven't found a good pastrami since I went to Katz's. It is not all love. So we should not be pretending like it is. And I I just felt like, why can't we just talk about like, let's have Let's talk about the excellent pizza we have in Los Angeles and make that a list. The excellent pastrami we have in Los Angeles, make that a list. Why do we have to cosplay? This one really, uh, this one really got me going. I'm sorry. Okay, I, I think I think this one might be just like a a personal nerve for you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a personal problem. And and when you mentioned the commenters in the in the LA countdown <laughs> talking about talking shit about the pizza reviews, I'm like, this finally makes sense. Because I'm going to be honest, I just wasn't that mad. <laughs> I read this and I was like, "This he really needs to get this off his chest. I'm glad we gave you space to do so here. Seems like a good list. I'm interested in the Bodega Mart. Great stuff. I am, but The one thing that made me think of is I wonder if there's much of a return in the opposite direction. Our LA restaurant tours expand to New York. I don't know if I've heard that and I'm curious about it. There's no like bestia new york location right or whatever which i found to be interesting it's much more the other way around but that was just like a personal curiosity yeah i'm not that mad about that it seemed like a pretty good list we already have the list of la's best pizza we know about that i know i know but look i don't know man i just think that there there is uh this weird relationship between new york and los angeles i mean we see it with michelin right we're like Michelin looks at New York and is like, okay, if you're opening in New York, then we will uh, we will consider you. And if you're opening in Los Angeles, it's like you got to jump through hoops of fire while you know singing singing songs in Russian and you know uh, like you know what I mean, just doing the impossible to be noticed by Michelin. And I I don't know, I just feel like our our paper of record should like try to stand up for us a little bit more than just like kowtowing to new yorkers i i don't know that's how i felt look you're right this is probably probably a me issue probably a me issue but i actually want to hear from our listeners did this list piss you off because i will say i posted it on threads and i got some responses people people were not happy okay so it might be bigger than just me Hey, look, I support tribalism in any form. Get 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 your xenophobia for New Yorkers out. I, my word of advice, though, is you, you don't want to sound like the little brother, right? You don't want to sound like the – you don't want to be the guy who's like, ah, you suck. And the other guy's like, I don't think about you at all, bro. So be careful. Be careful. Don't little bro yourself. I also, second quick thought, as you were going on, I'm like, I feel like this is a very like – white dude thing where you've never experienced discrimination of any kind so the slightest (laughs) hint of it being disrespected you're like what the fuck what the fuck and it's like just a bagel shop in la bro it's not a big deal (laughs) yeah yeah no look you're you're probably right but i like to think that i'm standing up for all of los angeles not just me uh (laughs) when i do this okay okay well look i think we've done uh, enough newsy bits for today i'm ready to talk about five star chef so we'll be right back after the break to break down what i think is a pretty interesting food show 
there's a new cooking competition show that's been showing up on my Netflix feed, and uh, it really sparked my interest. So I clicked on it, started watching it, and I realized, hey, this is actually really good stuff. And so I assigned homework to Father Saul to go home and watch Five Star Chef. Five Star Chef is what it's called. It's made by Channel 4 in the UK, streaming on Netflix. It's the same channel that airs the Great British Baking Show, if you're familiar with that. Saul, what do you think? I I fucking loved Five Star Chef, man. I was really into it. It reminded me of like a sort of almost like a like a Top Chef miniseries set in England. It was kind of that vibe. The the stakes felt high. The judging was on point. The talent was there. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I know we'll go in deep, but what did you think? Oh my god, I cannot say enough good things about it. And I will get. I will disclose just how good I thought it was in just a little bit. But first, could you give our listeners, could you do the task of giving our listeners a quick rundown of what the show is all about? Absolutely. So the show is set at the Langham Langham Hotel in London, which is, I believe, a five-star hotel, which was a standard I was not aware of, but it's pretty fucking high. And in what the competition is, is the head basically chef I guess executive chef of the hotel is trying to find via this conversation a chef who will have an opportunity to run the Palm Court, which is one of the hotel's restaurants. And I believe uh, a one Michelin star or the chef is one Michelin star. The point is the competition is a chance for these chefs to have uh, to lead the kitchen in this highly regarded hotel and highly regarded Michelin star restaurant, right? And the competition takes them through the tasks they will need and the talent they will need to show over their period of running the running the restaurant, culminating in essentially like a restaurant wars type finale for them to kind of duke it out to see who's the one who's going to run the Palm Corps at the Langham Hotel. Three great judges that we'll talk about, um, great, great competitors, really interesting challenges and really interesting food. That would be my quick summary. That's really good. I think uh, you did a much better job of that than with Secret Chef, and I think that that is actually a testament to the show, not to you. Sure. It's mostly it's mostly the fact that this show has a really clear concept, and Secret Chef has a really confusing concept, and that's why this one is easier to explain. Now, uh, that's exactly right. This show is basically one long ass job interview where everybody, yeah. everybody, all the chef contestants come in with a concept for what they would bring to the palm court. And it's basically their job to undergo all of these challenges um, and see via the judges, which one will be most likely to succeed in this really high pressure five-star environment. Um, Real quick. I want to talk about the judges. The gentleman you refer to is Michelle Rue jr. Uh, He's actually a Nepo baby of the culinary industry. And (laughs) He seems to be the British slash French Gordon Ramsay, meaning he's like the host on MasterChef and kind of famous for being a little bit gruff, um, which is interesting because Gordon Bra- Ramsay, I thought, was the British Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, he actually the the person that I that came to mind for me because Michelle, I heard I heard there was chatter that Michelle was like abusive on the show. Hell no, Gordon Ramsay, I do think has been abusive. Michelle reminds me more of like a Simon Cowell figure. He's the one who, because he's a straight shooter. He's not just like over the top, aggressively like critical for the sake of the cameras. He's like, here's what it is. This is why it wasn't good. Or this is why it was good. I'm impressed. And has that sort of composure of like a cowl type figure. I actually have, 
American Idol comparisons for all three of these judges, although I think they are better than their uh, the counterparts I'm comparing them to. Oh, it's so I, I so let's talk about those other judges. One is Ravneet Gill, uh, who is a dope pastry chef, uh, British pastry chef, uh, and she's a also a presenter and also an activist. She does a lot uh, to uplift people in the industry. Um, and I thought she was she was fantastic. I mean, just some of the insights she brought to the table, super, like super poised, like ve- a very, very good TV personality. Definitely want to see more of her. And then there was Mike Reed, who is a chef, TV personality and consultant, which I, I think is a, a mark against him. But uh, he's uh, <laughs> he makes for very good TV, too. I mean, this was, I think, one of the strong suits of the show is you start with like a yes. really strong like uh, cast of judges who, first of all, have amazing personalities, but also are given yep. really real airtime on the show because they're in the kitchen with the contestants yep. as they're doing challenges. It's it's amazing Loved to see. Loved it. Loved it. No, that was a huge part of it. I think to your, to your very point. Uh, the, the the personalities of the judges and their roles were so clearly defined and that made them all play across each other really well and they had the um the the cachet like the the, the respect of the contestants i think not just because of their background but because for various challenges they were literally side by side in the kitchen watching them work mike for at least one episode i think maybe even more than one is basically expediting the kitchen during a real service while the chefs are uh, giving out menus that they've created. And it's just so cool to see watching a real judge interact with uh, support and also and like also push the contestants. Really great dynamic. One that I wish we'd come up with when we were designing the perfect food challenge, a food TV show. Well, it's really cathartic because I feel like that's one of the things in Top Chef that sometimes feels a little annoying is there are these dynamics in the mm-hmm. kitchen and you see some chefs really struggling. Maybe they're assholes in the kitchen and the judges don't see that. It's only afterwards. And, you know, we could count countless times where contestants on Top Chef probably should be going home, but they don't because the mm-hmm. judges don't didn't see what went on in the kitchen. There is no hiding in this show. The judges are in there watching your every move because the goal is to assess whether you can run a five-star kitchen. Yep. I, I thought that was an yep. absolutely brilliant, brilliant thing. So just to set the scene a little bit more, dear listener. So uh, Saul mentioned every judge has sort of their own role. Michelle, uh, Chef Michelle Rue, he's sort of the he, – he is the chef, executive chef um, at – the Langham. So he is sort of the ultimate decider. He's the head judge, if you will. Ravneet brings sort of like the the perspective of what's hot right now, what's trending, and what will work mm-hmm. in the market. Like what she she knows yeah. like what's Instagrammable, what what like consumers want. Mike also brings that, but he brings it more almost like from like a, a restaurant operation standpoint. Like, oh, you can make great margins on this food. Yeah, this is definitely going to work from a financial standpoint. From an operation standpoint, it's doable as well. So that's absolutely brilliant. Let's talk really quickly about the uh, the sort of like flow of the show. So first of all, yeah. to give you a little bit of background, uh, there it begins with sort of like an American Idol style, which is a great comparison you made, by the way. American Idol style, like, uh, what's that called? Uh, cat call? Cow call? Uh, uh, an audition, bro. Cast, <laughs> casting call? Yeah. Yeah, that, that one. It's that audition, one. They're, but they're basically auditions, yeah. They're, they do, like, brief auditions. I loved this episode. And and I basically, the uh, at the first episode, which is a great hook, uh, each of the potential contestants comes in 
showing a signature dish from their restaurant concept and then has to pitch the restaurant concept. And on the spot, they're judged on the quality of their food, the creativity, the execution, the level, whether it's luxurious enough for this uh, location, and the overall concept and idea, whether or not they explain it well enough and have a grasp of what they want to do. Um, so fun. It was like really, I mean, this is like right up my alley in terms of a challenge. And from there, they pick out a set of judges who will compete. And there are only what, six, seven episodes of the entire season. It's yeah. very, it's not a whole 18 episode Top Chef thing. It's truly a job interview, which I think is really, really cool and such an interesting hook for a competition. Because to your very point about these judges being in the kitchen to assess these chefs, I think the comparison to Top Chef is really interesting because Top Chef, we learned during when we went to the Infatuations uh, Food Fest in L.A. and we saw Tom and Gail speak. They don't have very much interaction with the chefs in part because they don't want like any bias, right? They're judging based on food. That's what Top Chef is about. This is a job interview. This is you got to know the person who's going to be taking over the kitchen. And the intimacy, therefore, between judge and contestant, I thought is a really cool, like uh, that that was necessary for the actual outcome of the show was a really interesting additional dynamic. 100%. And there's that whole like cathartic, you're going to Hollywood moment in the first episode. Which totally. is sort of like they do the same thing that American Idol does in terms of, you know, going back to your statement, this is a great hook, where they tell you the backstory of people before they go up and serve. And yep. you're already invested before they even serve their first dish. And so in the same episode, you're getting roller coasters of like, oh, man, I'm so glad the guy who was homeless made it through. And also, I'm so sad that this person who had this horrific backstory did not make it through. But, you know, I'll be rooting yeah. for them regardless. So it's a real roller coaster of emotion from the get-go. Absolutely brilliant way to kick off the show. And then every episode thereafter is more traditional in its structure. There's two challenges. Yeah. One that's sort of like not the quick fire. Well, it kind of is kind of like a quick fire basically challenge. Basically the quick fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically it's the quick fire. They, I don't know if it's quite as quick. It's not like 15, 20 minutes, but right. it's like, you know, yeah. you're doing a tea service or a, or a breakfast or something like that. And then there's the main challenge, which is basically the chefs who were on the bottom from round one have to compete to stay on in round two. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I don't know, that structure really worked for me. It was familiar, but also felt fresh. No, I, I liked it a lot too, because it was familiar. Obviously, it's, it, it, it mimics a kind of Top Chef-y episode. However, instead of the quick, quick fires can sometimes be a little gimmicky or, you know, sometimes be, oh, sudden death elimination, quick fire and something, something. No, every single challenge here was designed in some way to test the chef's uh, ability to execute in the hotel environment and in this restaurant which was cool. And you're right that there were like, you know, there was some time pressure for sure. They had to do a real, real service, right? They should have created a menu and execute it. Um, and, you know, they would run behind it in a classic restaurant war style, et cetera. But it all, the, the, the flow of the show as a whole was really on point, right? And the rewards for different, uh, for success and the punishment for failure all felt on point, right? I think everything, the judging was clear and fair and the challenges were also not, gimmicky they were they were true challenges and and they gave chefs a real opportunity to execute the challenges to the best of their ability given what their actual constraints would be in a hotel not just an arbitrary time hold totally so let's talk about that for a second let's let's zero in on the challenges so there were some really interesting challenges on this show and even though i wouldn't say they were 
revolutionary in any way because yeah. we we've seen best breakfasts and things like that on shows like Top Chef, but just the fact that you knew that they were doing it for with the very express purpose of can you do this in this exact setting and at this five star yeah. level and in a way that's super marketable that's going to work that's going to bring people in that i think made every challenge that much more special my question for you is were there any that stood out the one the one that's coming to mind for me is when they had to make their signature dish, like the most expensive dish on the menu, which was interesting one. I mean, look, it was a little corny and you're like, it's a little gross in a way that they're like, hey, here's my $500 like gold plated steak dish or whatever. But it was just interesting from the, set, from the uh, standpoint of that particular setting, because this is a restaurant that literally is incredibly expensive and like highest dollar, which means that there is an expectation for luxury and an expectation for a full experience. So these, these uh, literally, as you were mentioning, the dishes are judged by like, are they Instagrammable? Are people going to want to come for come because they saw this dish on a, in a news article or on an Instagram feed and they want to go experience it, right? And also like, how do you price it out? Like how, how does this dish fit into like the broader concept? I like that a lot. And it was also something I hadn't quite seen from that angle. Um, yeah. My favorite challenge... I don't think it was the same one. I think it was it was a different episode, but it was the one where basically the chefs had to go head to head. Each one had a dish on the same menu, and whichever one right. sold the most um, yeah. and made the, not only sold the most but grossed the most profit based on how much the, right. ing- the ingredients of that dish cost w- would be the yep. winner. That that I loved that one, man, because there was the totally. real like tangible competition, but be like strategy. Like some chefs yes. like tried to make a really luxurious dish, employing really expensive ingredients, meaning that their margins would be lower, and therefore they would have to sell more. And others were like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna make something really cheap and just, but it's gonna sound bomb, and hopefully people order it, and my margins will make the difference." It was a great challenge in terms of strategy, but also like in creativity and coming up with something. I loved it. Totally agree with you. You might have actually swayed me too, because that's a fuller kind of strategic element. And yeah, you're exactly right where they weren't too strict, right? They, they, were, they weren't too strict with the um, structure of the challenges, right? The, the chefs had decisions they had to make about what they were going to bring to the table to then, quote unquote, win the challenge and have to keep their eye on the prize as well. There was one particular contestant who was almost in she was like a chef but really she was more like a circus master and like was really into the theatrics of everything which worked for the environment in several cases eventually went a little bit too over the top it kind of feels like she's in the long uh, wrong line of work but it was really interesting to see how she approached strategically like selling herself in the interview process so heavily based on you know theatrics and bringing in like people in costume and like fire on the plate and all that. And her food was sometimes good, sometimes not so good. <laughs> and like literally not correctly executed versus others. So yeah, no, loved it. Loved it. Let's talk about contestants to that point. So in the intro, they they said something like, we uh, put out a wide net bringing in contestants from all over the world. To me, it felt like they were just looking in London, but you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> what did you think about the actual quality of the contestants? I was pretty impressed. I was pretty impressed overall. Um, each of them, I'm not going to be perfect with remembering names or anything, but each of them had 
definitely like the level of a, I'd say a, a near Top Chef finalist. Not saying that they would get to the final of Top Chef because Top Chef has its own other set of challenges. But in terms of the quality of food they put out, it was like a top tier top shot Top Chef season, right? Close to what you would see at a finale, right? So I was impressed by that. I was pretty impressed with the diversity. They had a couple of different cuisines in there, um, and, and and different approaches to the uh, to the the way of doing luxury food, which I thought was compelling. Uh, yeah, no, overall impressed. My favorite person did not win, but that's okay. Well, uh, okay, yeah. You, we're trying not to do spoilers, but you have to let us know who your favorite was. My favorite was Raquel, the American woman. Who, yeah, yeah. I see you. I see you. No, she. I think I believe she would have done the best job. Uh, and I, I wish we could do a spoiler conversation because there's a really compelling like finale that happens. And as I'm watching, it's almost bamboozling the finale in some ways. Um, but I feel like she would have really crushed it in that scenario. And also, uh, the one of the person I'll give a hat tip to is uh, the woman who was also, I think, American actually, and was formerly an engineer and had a concept that I loved. She like her personality was fine, but her concept was what I loved, which was uh, essentially not vegan, not vegetarian, but plant centric food, which I think is yeah. so smart. And I don't know how I've not heard about that really before. Uh, so those are my two favorites. That was cool. Yeah, her name was Adria, and uh, yeah, she yeah, it was a great concept actually. My favorite, hands down, was Igor. I would have died for that man. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, <laughs> so his backstory was incredible. So he was like born in Soviet Russia to a uh, single mother, and he was given some antibiotics as a child that had been banned everywhere else in the world except Russia. And they basically made him go deaf from a very young age. So here, so he, and they ultimately moved to Sweden, um, and so he employed this very like Nordic approach to food. But he was this like mad scientist deaf chef uh, who honestly had such an incredible like outlook on life, but also like frankly a, a jarring amount of self confidence. I would have done anything yeah. that man told me to do. He could have told me like. You know, I think you should never speak to your mother again. And I'd be like, I'd consider it. You know what I mean? So he was he was compelling, a very compelling character. And his food was very interesting. I, I don't have a, a, a an interest in Nordic food. I, I find it to be quite bland and boring. But he made it look good. And I got to say, uh, he was, to me, the most compelling contestant. But it was a, it was a tough choice because they did a good job. They did a really good job on this show. I was surprised. The thing that rubbed me the wrong way about Igor was that confidence. Not the gr not the best at taking feedback, and also the the most. Oh, I know we're not spoiling, but just in the kitchen environment, something that I thought was interesting was his communication wasn't very good in terms of like where he was at and what he needed because his confidence, I think, was so high, and his self image I mean, was like. Okay, I hate to say this, but is it because his confidence was so high, or because he couldn't hear them? No, 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 no. That's not the case. The guy was literally like, do you have enough potato? And he was like, yeah, totally. Guess what Igor didn't have? Enough fucking potato. <laughs> so I don't think you can blame that. I was, I thought I was curious. I mean, look, the first time I've ever seen a hard of hearing chef on one of these shows, uh, competition shows, and, and he was really fucking talented. He, like the food he put out was like the best looking consistently. Um, yeah. And I was like, well, the thing is this, the kitchen really is a super auditory environment. I know there's, I'm sure there's ways around that, but I'm curious like what the communication would look like in a, in a kitchen led by a deaf like executive or deaf uh, chef de cuisine. And what like the, are they like different signals or what like workarounds? Because there is so much yelling and like verbal communication that happens. I would have been 
I, I would have wanted to see that just with, like just curiosity of how they, they do the workarounds, but um, it was badass. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting point. Like, yeah, how do you how do you expedite? How do you say like yes, like behind <laughs> and corner and stuff like that? Yeah. That is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, um, let's talk real quick about the judging. So basically, the judging of the show happens in those two rounds. Pretty pretty standard format, you know. Like the the judges eat the food, they uh, they discuss it, and then ultimately Michelle makes the the call on who stays and who goes. Um, but his opinion is heavily influenced by Ravneet and Mike. What did you think about the the actual judging on this show? I thought it was strong. I, I, I really appreciated the amount of time they let us spend with the judges as they were discussing. Um, I also think I also think my had like my favorite my favorite like line judging line from this show now, which is, "But is it five star?" Which I thought was a hilarious <laughs> thing they kept saying over and over. They're like, "It's delicious." But is it five star? I know I can <laughs> already like, see I can already see you and me on our taco crawl this weekend, and you eating it and be like, "It's delicious." But is it five star? And he's got like a Morisco's Jalisco in his hand. Yeah, <laughs> and I will say that's actually one of the hardest things about the judging. I will say now, in terms of the actual execution, show great for me as an American viewer who is not familiar with the five star rating system for hotels. Really, I actually have no idea if it's five star, bro. <laughs> I'm going off what Michelle's saying isn't, isn't. I'm kind of getting an idea, but would would have been helpful. Like, look, they say, hey, look, yeah, five-star, really high expectations, really high luxury. But what was missing for me was like a benchmark for what five-star means, which I think might have been helpful. That was really, that might have been more on the producers than the judges to like not contextualize that quite as much. But that was the one thing where I'd be like, and look, you can figure it out. But it was kind of like they kept saying this thing over and over again. And I'm like, I get what you mean, but I don't, quite get what you mean (laughs) yeah well this is to me one of the judging is the one thing that i think they could have done a little bit better because i agree with you i love how much time we got to see them conversing about the dishes and breaking down the merits but the one thing you didn't have here which you do have in top chef is that moment where the judges are interacting with the contestants and being like so what? Why did you do that thing where you put the you know? Uh, why did you? Point. What happened in there? Well, you know, what were you? What were you thinking? And you didn't ever have that dialogue between contestant and judge, and I miss that. I feel like if some of the contestants could have argued their case a little bit more, or if you know, they, they a could have learned more probably moving into future rounds. Mm-hmm. But B also, I think there maybe could have been some slightly different decisions. I don't know if it would have changed the overall course of the season necessarily, but I just love that drama too, where like sometimes the contestants get chippy with the judges, you know, I think it's a missed opportunity. I, I think that's an interesting point. And I do wonder, this might be giving too much credit, but I do wonder if the job interview aspect of it was kind of in there because, you know, a, a consumer, a customer at the hotel just got to go interview the chef and ask them what their idea was. So you might want to like, so what you only have is what they're going to give you from the kitchen. Of course, you might also want a little bit more insight into what the person you're quote unquote hiring is actually thinking and what their intent is. So I think it's a fair point. I will, the one other thing I do want to raise as well, which is, I don't know if it's judging related or just overall show structure related, but this contestant we've, uh, was her name Laura, the contestant who was really theatrical and stuff. Yeah. Laura, uh, Laura, who had all these ideas and she like, would bring in, like I said, performers and all that. I was like, yo. And one challenge, she literally brings out like six circus performers and like fire dancers. 
and they're like, you know, swallowing. He had, she has a guy in like a like a furry rabbit costume or some shit, the Easter Bunny costume. <laughs> is uh, your is your question about to be? Is your question about to be? How do I get that job? <laughs> it is not, but you know, always taking ideas. It is, yo. What the fuck is Laura's budget versus everyone else? How is she allowed to just hire? I'm like, I was like, wait, like, look. Was everyone given the opportunity to hire fire breathers or like fire swallowers? What's going on here? It seems so unfair to me. I'm like, did she bring this herself the way like Buddha brought molds? She just has like six dudes in her hotel room, like ready to go if she needs like fire dancers for a particular performance. That was so confusing to me. Like, what what allowed her to do all this extra shit? That no one else was allowed to do. Or, I don't know, no one else seemed to want to do, probably understandably. It's a great question. But then again, I think sometimes you can have too many resources at your disposal and ultimately it bit her in the ass. Yeah, I think so. For so, bondage uh, lobsters, bro. <laughs> final question for you on this. Actually, I have two more, but uh, second last is one of the things that made this show so great and it's actually an idea we pretty much had when we were coming up with the perfect comp- cooking competition show the steaks the steaks were so good you get yeah. the restaurant yeah. you get the keys to the restaurant my question is can a show like this have a second season because uh, that restaurant's gone you know well I actually let me correct you on this because i actually went back and looked it up after the finale the restaurant's not gone it's basically a, a six months pop-up <laughs> <laughs> so i and yeah 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 i know i see your face i was bummed too so there there's all this build up to who i'm going to give the keys to the palm court restaurant to and they do give the keys for a short i actually read there was a review by the same top uh, same reviewer who came out of top chef season 20 uh jimmy i think his name is and he did a review of the restaurant that's there now and it was a good review and it was like and he was basically like i hope someone gives this guy a chance to do it this person <clears throat> a chance to do it full time because it's a good, it's a good restaurant. It's a good idea. Uh, so I, and I do wish it's, it's, I'm glad, I'm so glad you brought this up because I kind of wish they'd made that clear because yeah. it's really more of an incubator and like a, it, it's turning the palm court into like a experimental space several times a week, basically for, for several services uh, yeah. for, uh, for an, a, a set period of time. And if that was it, then hell yeah, I could have, because you could, could have a second season because you'd have a rotating, Set of cast members. Instead, they decide to make it like, hey, this is the end all be all. Palm Court's gone. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, look, part <laughs> of me's like, part of me's like bummed that they didn't give it to him forever. But part of me's happy because it means that they can just run it back and do it again and do it again and again and again and again. And that kind of makes the Palm Court its own destination in a way, right? Because kind those of, six yeah. months, you're, you're, you know, you're getting people who want to see the new iteration of the five star chef winner, you know? So, I, I don't hate that honestly. No, I don't. I mean, the only the only correction I would make is that they make those that reality clear. But then, of course, you're giving not only are you giving him like a real opportunity and doing a great service to the Palm Court for marketing purposes and to get people to test it out. It's basically like like I said, an incubator for a new restaurant idea. I got to imagine there are investors who would then come and eat and want to like actually stand up the restaurant that these people are putting up. So it's a great prize getting like getting the restaurant several nights a week at the Palm Court. For, for several months is a great prize. And I hope I do hope they bring it back. It should be it should be a rotating guest judge, winner of five star chef, who gets to own like have their restaurant concept run out of the palm court, you know, for a set period of time and hopefully use that as a platform to greater things. My final question for you is this. So we, we know we like the show, but how much did you like it? And what I'm really asking you is the show is good. 
but is it five star? <laughs> it's a five star. It's a five star dish. It just is. The, 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 I, I will say my, my favorite thing is uh, Michelle uh, has a great, the head, the head judge has just a great affect. I have mm-hmm. one that I personally respond to really well. And uh, when he, when he's like, it's five star. And he just says it in his like little, yeah. little like monotone voice. And it's like proud. I'm like, he does like he yeah. he's like, yeah, it's five star. It's five star. Like no yeah, doubt in his it's mind. Five yeah, it's five star. <laughs> five star. Like literally, he's like a, a, a fact has been stated. It's incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. Highly recommend the show. We said it was going to be non-spoiler convo. It was semi-spoilery. You might want to give folks a warning, but highly yeah. recommend folks check this one out. I'm going to say it. I think this is the best cooking competition show to have been created in the last 10 years. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So really, the, the I, I think based on what I've seen that. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Go on. The contenders are really like, I think since MasterChef, which is probably the last like great cooking competition show that's really like swept the, the world. It's got so many different iterations. There's, you know, Final Table was decent on Netflix, but it only had one season. Um, there's a few oh, others. Which, Tournament of Chefs is I, I love it, but let's face it, it's a bit gimmick. It's a bit like you know campy, you know. Um, yeah, this one I think is hands down. It's five star. It's five star. If if they took this and decided to do exactly what we're describing and make it like a rotating, hey, there's a like top level chefs have a chance to basically they who have had wanted a restaurant their whole lives have a chance to do it. They would get a consistent, like consistently high application class. They'd have a consistently like high stake reward, especially if, if the first alumni from the show, first champion, gets to go and do something good, or any of the other alumni for that matter. You're totally, you're totally right that this has the most potential of any show that I've seen, cooking show I've seen, and and you know, outside of Top Chef, like it's really, really cool. Um, and I, I think they have all the right personalities in it, and all they need is to decide to keep doing it, basically. Yeah. Well, look, I got to run because uh, we're actually going to All Day Baby's Food Trivia Night, and I don't want to be late because uh, I'm winning it this week, come hell or high there water. There you go. But Father Saw, before I let you go, I just wanted to say you have a homework assignment for the next episode where we're going to review a TV show, and that is check out Pressure Cooker on Netflix. I think you'll enjoy the concept. It's basically another thing that we brought up in our uh our brainstorm of best cooking shows and it really brings in sort of the game theory strategy alliance element so Hmm. i think you're gonna enjoy this pressure cooker that's your homework can't wait to talk about it man i'm looking forward to it all right brother well i'll see you in la i'll see you in la in just a, a few short days here can't wait bud good luck at trivia Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Father Saul for gracing us with his dulcet tones. If you like what you heard today, dear listener, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A. F-O-O-D-P-O-D. We'll be back next week with another episode, and it's going to be a special one, I promise.